Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. We're delighted to bring you this sermon from our Sunday gathering. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net. Thank you and enjoy the following message. Do you remember the moment, that moment that you were in utter despair because you had to read some classic work of literature (laughs) and had 600 pages to go before first period? But then, like an angel of God, a friend saw your downcast face and asked, why don't you just read the Cliff's Notes? And you said, what are those? In 1958, a man named Clifton Hillegas began writing these study guides that came to be known as Cliff's Notes. They are interpretive guides for many influential books and plays and help us to understand the meaning of those plays and books. Personally, I am very thankful to Cliff. I understand most of what I understand about Billy Shakespeare from him. Today at the end of John chapter 12, we find Jesus' last words to the people before he goes into hiding with his disciples, before his arrest and trial and crucifixion. And so the next four chapters, John 13 through 17, are known as the upper room discourse because it takes place in that upper room where Jesus and the disciples enjoyed that last Passover meal together. And if anything in this book can be called the Cliff's Notes of John's gospel, This is it. John presents the words of Jesus here at this point because they are essentially a summary of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how we must respond. So we're going to learn this morning that we see the Father through the Son, whom God sent to save the world. Now, this section stands out because if you go back to verse 36 in your Bible, At the beginning of the previous section that we studied last week, we find this. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now, according to John, Jesus said the words recorded in verses 27 through 36, and then he hid himself from the crowds. And then John goes on to explain in verses 37 through 43 why most people didn't believe in him in spite of all the many miracles that he performed. Miracles that if you wrote them all down, the world could not contain the books. It says in verse 43, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So that seems like the end, right? Like the chapter should... Wrap up right there. Jesus said what he was going to say and then went into hiding with his disciples. That feels like a good time to wrap it up and cut to the next scene. But that is not what happens here in John chapter 12. Now, instead of wrapping up in verse 43 and moving on to the upper room discourse, John comes in with verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said. 
And we have to remember that the gospel writers are telling the story of Jesus's life and ministry. They do not recount every detail of every day. That would have been unnecessary and impossible to do. Instead, each of the four gospel writers are highlighting key moments in Jesus's life, what he said and what he did, that capture the heart and the meaning of his teaching and ministry so that readers like us can understand what he said, what he did, and why it matters. So in this case, John presents these words of Jesus at the end of the chapter, although he likely said them before he went into hiding in the upper room. Because these are the Cliffs Notes, a summary of what Jesus said and did in his ministry. So John presents them here at the end of Jesus' public ministry as a final appeal to believe in him. Because, friends, that's what this is. This is an appeal to believe in Jesus. Do you notice that John doesn't write in verse 44, and Jesus said? Jesus certainly said everything in that paragraph, but he didn't just say those words. John writes that he cried out and said. The Greek word here implies screaming or shouting. Jesus cries out. And John is highlighting the fact that Jesus is not making an emotionless appeal to the crowd. But friends, so many people picture Jesus like that, as a man whose emotions never wavered, that he just always felt the same no matter what. But that does not come from the Bible. I want you to look at Luke 19 on the screen. This is right after Jesus' triumphal entry. Luke records, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. John presents the triumphal entry right at the beginning of chapter 12. And so what Luke is recording, Jesus weeping over the city, happens right before what we're reading today. Jesus is not indifferent to us. Scripture tells us that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that is obvious because he sent his only begotten son to seek and to save the lost, all the while urging the lost to believe in him, crying out after them. Because back in verse 37, John noted that most of the crowd still didn't believe in Jesus in spite of all the signs that he performed. That did not stop him from crying out once more, pleading for the crowd to listen to him, to believe in him, to respond to him positively. Jesus is crying out to some of you today through the Bible and through this sermon. You may not have yet come to saving faith in Christ, but Jesus has not stopped pursuing you. He has not stopped crying out to you. There are thousands and thousands of false gods in this world. And every one of them is mute. They do not cry out to you. They do not make emotional appeals to you to repent and to believe. But even if they weren't mute, and even if they could cry out, they would not be crying out words of mercy and grace and forgiveness like Jesus does. They would be demanding more of you, more effort, 
more sacrifice, more religious activity, because that is what every other God demands. But Jesus does not cry out demanding that we do more for him. He cries out that he has already done everything that is necessary in his sinless life, his death on the cross in our place, and his resurrection from the dead. That is the difference between the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the bad news of every other religion that's ever been invented. Our God is a God who pursues and cries out to rebellious sinners to save them. Let's look at verse 44 again. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Jesus tells the crowd that whoever believes in him believes in the one who sent him. And dozens of times in the Gospel of John, Jesus states that it is none other than God the Father who sent him to say his words and to do his will. So if those who believe in Jesus also believe in God the Father who sent him, it is very important to define what we mean and what John means when we use the word believe. Well, the Greek word translated believe is pistuon, pistuon, and it means something like to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. To believe something to the extent of complete trust and reliance. And that is not the same thing as simply believing facts. Look on the screen at James chapter 2. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James tells us that there is a kind of belief in God that even demons have. And it's not a belief that could be defined as complete trust and reliance since we know the demons rebelled against God along with Satan. Instead, what is it? It is a belief in facts, namely that God exists and that he is one. That is, that he is God alone and that there are no other gods besides him. Those are both true. God exists and he is one. He is God alone. Those are true beliefs, but they are not complete trust and reliance. So the person who says, I believe in God, but he or she means I believe God exists and I believe that there is no other God besides him has the same faith as demons. Belief in facts is not what Jesus has in mind here. So how does the Bible define belief? or what we might call saving faith. Look at Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. So according to scripture, what is faith? It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Assurance, conviction, that sounds a lot more like complete trust and reliance, doesn't it? 
So when Jesus uses the word belief, he has in mind people who don't just agree with the facts that God exists and that he is God alone. He has much more in mind than that. He has much more in mind even that he, than believing that he is God's son and that he lived sinlessly and died and rose from the dead. Those are all facts. Those are all true. But believing in those facts alone will not save you. Jesus says, whoever believes in me. In other words, whoever has complete trust in me and who relies in me alone for salvation. Whoever is assured and convicted that salvation can be found nowhere else except in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the kind of belief that Jesus is talking about. That is the kind of belief that we must have. And then Jesus adds this statement, verse 45. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Now that's a profound statement. Jesus says that to look at him is to look at God the Father. And in a few weeks, we're going to come to John chapter 14, and we're going to see this interaction between Jesus and Philip. Take a look. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What does Jesus mean? We know from the rest of Scripture, God is spirit. He does not have a body like men. So Jesus can't mean that God the Father looks like him, a first century Middle Eastern man. Take a look at Colossians chapter 1 on the screen. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So what Jesus is saying about himself and what Paul is saying about Jesus is that seeing Jesus is seeing the Father in the sense that he is the image of the invisible God. All of the fullness of God, his complete divine nature, dwelt in Jesus and dwells in him still today in his physically resurrected body. Jesus is God incarnate, God in flesh, the infinite, perfect, all-powerful God of the universe in a human body. But just like when Jesus says, whoever believes in me, he means more than whoever believes the facts about me. When he says, whoever sees me, he means more than merely whoever looks at me. He means whoever sees me for who I really am, the Son of God. When we see Jesus for who he really is, that is the Son of God, who came to suffer and die and rise again for us, we are seeing the saving arm of the Lord that Isaiah prophesied about and that we looked at last week. Jesus is the arm of the Lord. And he must be revealed to us because we are born spiritually blind with hard hearts. We cannot see Jesus as he really is, as the saving arm of the Lord, unless God reveals that to us. The Father has to do that. 
But if we have that kind of faith, if we believe in Jesus because we see him for who he really is, Jesus says that we also see and believe in God the Father who sent him. So Jesus inseparably links faith in him and faith in the Father. It's a topic that comes up all the time in John's writings. I want you to look on the screen at 1 John chapter 2. John says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you are not assured and convicted that he is the Son of God, if you don't completely trust and rely on him for salvation, then what Jesus says and what John agrees with is that you don't have the Father also. You either have the Father because you have the Son. You either have both or you have neither. There is not a way to have the Father without having the Son. And that's what Jesus himself taught back in John chapter 10. Take a look. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So friends, Jesus wants to make it very clear that to see and believe in him is to see and believe in the Father. And to fail to see him for who he really is and to fail to believe in him is to fail to believe in God the Father who sent him to save the world. The Jewish crowd needed to hear these words because just like the demons, they agreed with all the facts. They agreed with the fact that God existed and that there was no other God besides him. They believed those things to be true. And many Americans today and many people around the world say that they believe in God, meaning also that they believe that there is one God and there is no other besides him. But if they have not believed in Jesus, if they aren't completely trusting in and relying on him alone for salvation, then they don't have the Father and they won't be saved. Because as Jesus himself will say in just a few weeks in John 14, no one comes to the Father except through me. There is one small, narrow path to eternal life. It is narrow and it is exclusive. It is Jesus alone. And in a culture and in an age where people believe there are many paths to heaven, Jesus said, that is not true. In a culture today that thinks there are many paths to heaven, Jesus says, that is not true. There is only one path to heaven. So when people have a problem with Christians and they say that Christians are bigoted and narrow-minded and everything else because we confess that there is one way to heaven, that was not us saying that. They do not have a problem with you. They do not have a problem with me. They have a problem with Jesus. Jesus said that that there is one way and it is through him. Verse 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, light is another major theme in the Gospel of John. 
comes out all the time in many chapters. And you might remember at the beginning of John's gospel, he wrote these words in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus' life is our light. He came to be the light of the world, and he promised that anybody who follows him will not walk in darkness, but instead have the light of life. But I want you to remember, when Jesus told the crowd that the Son of Man must be lifted up so that he could draw all people to himself, the crowd asked, who is this Son of Man? Who is this Hans? Here's how he replied. Take a look at John chapter 12. I don't know. I just thought about that every time I read that the last few weeks. Here's how Jesus replied to the crowd. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus came so that we would not remain in darkness. But the people that he was talking to were in danger of remaining in darkness, of darkness overtaking them because they were not believing in and walking in the light that Jesus was revealing. But there was no reason for that, for them to continue walking in the darkness, searching for the truth. Because Jesus said over and over again in many different ways, I'm the way. I am the light. I'm what you need. I am here to reveal God the Father to you. So to walk in the light, you have to follow me. And friends, this is so relevant for us today because so many people are stumbling through life without a comprehensive, consistent worldview. They have a patchwork system of beliefs that they've pulled from all of these different teachers and their own life experiences. And because that worldview is not comprehensive, it leaves many of life's biggest questions unanswered. And because that worldview is not internally consistent, it means that many of the questions that they've thought they already answered, they pop right back up as soon as they learn new information about themselves or about others, or new discoveries are made in our world. Their worldview is not comprehensive and it's not consistent. But Jesus gives us a comprehensive, consistent worldview. A worldview that does provide answers to life's most important questions. Does God exist? What is he like? What does he want from us? What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with me? Will justice ever be done? Is there any hope for salvation and eternal life? God has given us those answers in his word. He's given us a comprehensive worldview that, to be sure, does not answer every question that we could ever have, but it answers life's most important questions. And it does so in a consistent way so that our worldview holds up when new discoveries are made. Think about all of the things that people have believed and called science over the years. Every time a new scientific discovery is made, most of the world's belief system is rocked to the core. 
But there has never been a scientific discovery that has shaken the foundations of our faith. Because it simply affirms what God has already revealed to be true in his word. The worldview that Jesus gives us as light is comprehensive and it's consistent. And friends, if ever there were a time where people are looking for answers, when people are looking for a comprehensive and consistent worldview, that time is now. So our joyful privilege is to point them to Jesus, the light of the world, to his words and to his work, so that they will not remain in darkness, so that they can make sense out of the beauty and the brokenness of this world so that they can make sense out of the trials and the suffering that they endure, so that they won't lose hope no matter what happens to them. That is our great privilege as Christians. As Paul said, not many of us were wise by worldly standards. Maybe a few of us were, not me, not many of us. We weren't wise by worldly standards, but in Jesus Christ, the light of the world, He has revealed truth to us. He has given us that comprehensive and consistent worldview so that we can make sense of what happens to us and what happens around us in a world that is increasingly unstable and scary to live in. Verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. In these last few verses before Jesus goes into hiding, Jesus points the crowd back to what he has said and explains why listening to him and obeying him is so important. Near the end of his ministry, Matthew records that Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I mean, think about that just for a minute. How many words have been spoken in the course of human history? Almost all of them have been entirely forgotten. How can Jesus say that his words will never pass away? Well, remember what he said a few chapters ago in John 7 and John chapter 8. Look on the screen. Jesus said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. The one who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. That's what he repeats here in verse 50, the last spoken words before Jesus goes into the upper room with his disciples. Look at verse 50. He says, what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So listening to Jesus is essential because Jesus is declaring to us the very words of God the Father. His words are true and they will never pass away because they are God's words. What a claim that is. But incredibly, Jesus says that if anybody hears his words and does not keep them, he does not judge him. Listen to that again. 
For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. When Jesus came the first time, he did not come to judge. He came to save. And he would save us by standing in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved, dying on the cross for our sins. I want you to look on the screen at Romans 5. Such a beautiful text that reminds us of the grace that we did not deserve. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Friends, that is what Jesus did on the cross. When he went to the cross in our place, he absorbed the wrath of God. God is perfectly holy and just, and he cannot overlook any sin. To do so would be unjust, just as if a judge were to let guilty criminals go. It would be unjust for God to allow any sinner to go unpunished. And so there are only two options. We can bear the wrath of God ourselves, or Jesus can bear it in our place, which he offered to do. He said that he came to willingly lay down his life, that no one would take his life from him, but he, he would willingly go and stand in the place of sinners and absorb all of the wrath of God. It wasn't like he took most of the wrath of God and there's a little bit left for you where God is kind of disappointed with you, frustrated with you, a low-grade anger towards you because you are not yet perfect in Christ. No, he absorbed all of the wrath of God that you deserve for your sin. He took all of that and he did it willingly. That is why he came the first time. He came to save us, not to judge us by standing in the place of guilty sinners. And friends, we are still living in the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. His first coming, he didn't come to judge, he came to save. But when he returns and he promised that he would, he is coming to judge. Look what Jesus said in John chapter 5. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The day of judgment is coming. And Jesus taught elsewhere that it's going to come like a thief in the night. No one knows the day or the hour. No human being, not even Jesus himself, only the Father. But when he returns like a thief in the night to judge, it's going to be too late to obey his words. But friends, the good news is that day has not yet come. And what that means is there is still time to hear and obey. There is still time today, even now, 
to hear and obey the words of Jesus, to see him for who he really is as the son of God who came to take your place and to put all of your trust, your reliance on him for salvation, to let go of any trust that you're putting in the fact that you are a better person than other people that you know, the fact that you are a more religious person than other people that you know in your family or among your friend group, to let go of anything else that you're holding on to and instead put your total trust and reliance in Jesus alone because only he can absorb the wrath of God. Only he was perfectly righteous and offers to grant you that righteousness through faith. There is still time, but there will not always be time. Because when he returns on the last day, he is coming to judge. And every person is going to be judged by the words that Jesus has already spoken. Take a look at verse 48 again. He says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. What he is saying is that we reject Jesus by rejecting his words. And we reject his words by rejecting him. Just like the Father and the Son are one, Jesus is the word made flesh. So we cannot reject his words and receive him. We can't receive him and reject his words. They are one and the same. This is why God the Father said at the transfiguration when Jesus' appearance was changed on the mountain as he stood there with Peter, James, and John, and Elijah, and Moses appeared, he said, God the Father said to him, this is my beloved son. And then he told Peter, James, and John, listen to him. Listen to him. Have you listened to Jesus? Every parent knows there is a world of difference between hearing and listening. Hearing means that you are perceiving sound with your ears. Listening means that you are paying attention and you are responding to it. That's the difference between hearing and listening. And so many people hear the words of Jesus. They hear them in sermons. They hear them from friends and family. They hear them from the Bible itself. They hear, but they don't listen. They don't pay attention and they don't respond in obedience. And so ask yourself that question this morning. Have I listened to Jesus or have I merely heard Jesus? Because when Jesus returns, he is not coming as savior. He is coming as judge. And the standard by which we will be judged are the words that he has already spoken to us, the words that came straight from the Father. Look again at verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. That's a profound statement. Jesus is saying that when he speaks, he is not sharing his opinion. He is sharing the very words of the Father. And there are so many people out there that believe that Jesus was nothing more than a good teacher. In fact, they think that he never claimed to be anything more than a good teacher. Well, friends, Jesus was a good teacher, the greatest teacher that ever lived. And part of being a Christian is being a disciple, a student of Jesus, 
where we learn to think like him and talk like him and act like him. Jesus was a good teacher, but he claimed to be much more than that. In fact, he claimed to be the very son of God. And the one time in scripture that a man came up to him and addressed him as good teacher, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. In other words, I'm either God or I'm not good, but I can't be both. There is no such thing as a good teacher unless that good teacher is God. And so over and over, he said that he was only speaking what the Father commanded him and that his words were the Father's very words. To the Jews, that was blasphemy. And to everyone else, that was crazy talk, claiming to speak the very words of God. So understand, you may not believe Jesus when he says that he is the Son of God, when he says that he came to save and that he alone can save through his life, death, and resurrection. You may not believe him, and that's fine. But let's put away any ideas that Jesus was only a good teacher because no good teacher would lie about being the Son of God. And let's put away any idea that Jesus only claimed to be a good teacher because he didn't. He claimed to be the very son of God who spoke the words of the father and who came to save and who is returning to judge. Verse 50, once more. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the father has told me. Shortly after this, Jesus is going to be sharing the Passover meal in that upper room with his disciples. And during the course of that conversation, Jesus is going to pray what theologians call the high priestly prayer. I want you to look at how that prayer starts off. John 17, 3, this is one of the first things that he says. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. According to Jesus, eternal life is not merely existing forever. No, according to Jesus, eternal life is knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. God sent Jesus to make himself known to us so that we would no longer have to wonder what God is like, and what he wants from us. So when the crowd asked Jesus back in John chapter 6, what must we do to be doing the works of God? This is what Jesus said. Take a look. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That is the only work that we must do. Because we see the Father through the Son, whom God sent to save the world. Friends, the end of John 12 is Jesus' final invitation to the crowd. And it's his final invitation, in a sense, to us as well, before he goes into hiding with his disciples. It is a final appeal to come to him for eternal life, which is why Jesus doesn't just say these words. He cries out with them. He shouts them, pleading emotionally for every one of us to hear 
to see him for who he really is and to turn to him in repentant faith. So maybe your entire life, you have known and believed the facts. You have known your entire life and believed your entire life that there is one God, that he really exists and there's no other besides him. Maybe your entire life you've believed the facts that Jesus is the son of God, that he laid down his life, he died, was buried, and rose from the grave. Maybe you are well acquainted with those facts, but you have never trusted and completely relied on Jesus yourself for salvation. Do not think because you know the Bible forwards and backwards that you have eternal life. Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life. But the scriptures per se do not give us life. It is Jesus who gives us life. And the scriptures point to him. So if you've never received Jesus by faith, today needs to be the day that you do that. It is nothing more than acknowledging before God that you are a sinner in need of a savior. That you cannot save yourself no matter how hard you try and how hard you work and how much religious stuff you do. You acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a savior and that Jesus is that savior. God's word says that if we confess with our mouth that he is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And so I urge you and every Christian here urges you this morning, we cry out to you to receive Jesus for the first time. If you're already a Christian, I want to leave you with John's closing words from his first inspired letter. In 1 John chapter 5, he wrote all of these things to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. So this is written to every Christian of all time. Look what he says. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Praise God for revealing himself through the Son whom he sent to save the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing to so many of us that which we could not see or understand or believe on our own. That Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior that we need. I pray that every Christian is comforted by those words in John that we have come to know you through the Son and that we have eternal life in him and through him. I pray that as a comfort for any believer who is struggling, struggling with assurance, struggling with sin, 
struggling feeling like they're just never doing enough, never good enough, would you remind them today that they are accepted and fully loved because your son perfectly obeyed you in our place? Would you set their minds and their hearts and their consciences at ease? That they would no longer go on questioning your love for them, even when they mess up. Because we have a Savior. And God, for those who have not yet believed in Jesus, they haven't completely trusted in and relied on him, we pray that today would be the day. I pray that no one would assume that they are Christians just because they've always been in church, just because they're married to a Christian, just because their parents are Christians or their siblings are Christians. We pray that you would bring salvation even today through your Holy Spirit and your all-powerful word that points us to Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from New Life Baptist Church in College Station, Texas. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net.